Hello, and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Actually Taylor, and today, um, no guest, and there's only one subject, but I think it's a pretty interesting one, because today I'm going to be talking about Dr. Carl Patterson Schmidt, and he was an American herpetologist, and for those who don't know, herpetology is essentially just the study of reptiles and amphibians. But we're going to be talking about the last couple of days of his life in particular, as this was a guy who, when bitten by a snake, didn't go to the hospital. He decided to record the details in a diary. So we'll get into that momentarily. Today I am drinking a modern Yorkshire bitter called Things You Can't Unsee. Or in this case, Unhear. So I think we're just going to get straight into it and cut to music. See you guys in a bit. And we are back. So, let's talk about Carl Patterson Schmidt. A bit background first. So, he was born in Lake Forest, Illinois, to a George W. Schmidt and Margaret Patterson Schmidt. George was a German professor who, at the time of Carl's birth, was uh, teaching in the same area he was born in. And um, while in Lake Forest, Carl started becoming interested in sciences at Lake Forest Academy, finishing his first year with distinction. And... Until 1907, where the family left the city and settled in Wisconsin, and they worked on a farm near Stanley. And this is kind of where Carl would develop his interest in natural history in particular, and observation of nature would become quite central to his life. And about six years later, in 1913, Carl would go to Cornell University, where he'd study biology and geology, and on the geology side of things, uh, he'd focus particularly on paleontology. In 1915, he kind of realised that he preferred studying herpetology, or the study of amphibians and reptiles, during a four-month training course at the Purdy Oil Company in Louisiana. About a year later, in 1916, he got his degree of Bachelor of Arts and made his first geological expedition to Santo Domingo. And he'd have a pretty successful life in the sciences. From 1916 to 1922, he'd work as a scientific assistant in herpetology at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and he'd work under a lot of well-known American herpetologists like Mary Cynthia Dickinson. He'd make his first collecting expedition to Puerto Rico in 1919, becoming the assistant curator of reptiles and amphibians at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago in 1922. And going back just a sentence, so to 1919, around then he'd also marry his wife, Margaret Whiteman, and together they had two sons over the course of his life, John and Robert. So from 1923 to 1934, he'd make a lot of collecting expeditions for the museum to Central and South America, taking places like Honduras, Brazil, and Guatemala. And in 1937, he'd become the editor of the Herpetology and ichthyology journal called Copia, and he essentially did this till, till 1949. Though in the meantime, he did some more stuff. So in 1938, he uh, served in the US Army. In 1941, he was the chief curator of zoology at the Field Museum, where he'd be until 1955. And between 1942 and 1946, he'd be the president of the American Society of Ichthyologists and Herpetologists. His last expedition would be in 1953 to Israel. And over that time, he became pretty important. Like, it was definitely one of the top herpetologists, generally, in the 20th century. 
and made quite a lot of important discoveries by himself. Like he'd name over 200 species, becoming a leading expert in coral snakes in particular. And after his death, he'd donate 15,000 titles of herpetological literature uh, for the Carl P. Schmidt Memorial Herpetological Library at the Field Museum he worked at. But anyway, that's the background out of the way. Now, let's get into the interesting is the right word. Let's get into the p- part which I'm focusing on. Because honestly, I find his life very interesting as well. <laughs> but anyway, his life would come to a pretty abrupt end in 1957 when he was 67 years old. As he was bitten by a juvenile boomslang snake, the Dysphalidus typhus. And he'd be bitten at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, as the snake had been brought to the museum from Lincoln Park Zoo after it had been surprisingly difficult to find anyone that could identify it. And uh, during this, Dr. Schmidt would take hold of the snake and um, essentially be bitten on the hand. Like He actually describes it in the early pages of his, um, quote, death diary, which I'll read from in a bit. And in that, he's kind of described as not using a normal technique for taking hold of the snake. It's most problem that he's just kind of pretty absent-minded about it. And pretty much any herpetologist with experience knows that if you want to be bitten by a snake, all you need to do is grab it behind the head like he did. And that's essentially exactly what happened. And the snake, which is estimated about 26 inches, or 30 inches if you're going by Dr. Schmidt himself, bit him on the hand. And he believed it couldn't produce a fatal dose, which was pretty wrong, as proven by, you know, him dying. So... After the bite, he'd start making detailed notes on the symptoms he experienced. And this would go pretty much right before he died. And ended up being a detailed set of notes on the effects of boomslang venom. Now, it's possible that Dr. Schmidt wasn't the most familiar with the species itself, as nearly 20 years previous in the South American Medical Journal, two people called Grasset and Shasma showed that the boomslang snake produces a lot of venom with higher toxicity than more famous snakes like cobras and mambas. And they also proved that the boomstang has two types of toxic elements in its venom, being proteolytic and coagulant. The coagulant side of it, essentially, it has clotting effects, is what it means, and produces a bunch of small blood clots, which can have pretty immediate and potentially fatal effects. And this can happen before the proteolytic side of things, which essentially means that it breaks down proteins, can dissolve it. However, the proteolytic side of things, still breaking down proteins, can cause heavy internal bleeding once it enters the bloodstream. But at the same time, that said, they're also known to have one of the mildest temperaments for venomous snakes, and generally don't really bite unless they're threatened, so that could have been part of it as well. And a bit after his death, a scientist called Clifford H. Pope would publish Schmidt's death diary, uh, which I'll read from shortly. And Anne would write that though Dr. Schmidt's optimism was extremely unfortunate, as proved by his death, it must be admitted that there was some justification. The boomslang was very young and only one fang penetrated deeply. And he'd also blame Schmidt's total lack of experience with boomslang venom for the death. Like one um, paper that I found on ResearchGate would say that a lot of contemporary herpetologists wrongly believe that rear fanged columbroid snakes, just like the type of snake it was, couldn't produce a fatal venom dose for a human. But like I said earlier, pretty wrong. And over the next 24 hours, Schmidt would describe the symptoms he experienced as a reaction to the snake bite, down to the point of knowing down exactly what kind of food he had throughout the day, the kind of symptoms he had, etc, uh, etc. Et so I think this is a good time to just read from what was written down. Because, you know what, if, if someone's going to write about his own death, I might as well read it word for word. <laughs> I feel like he, I feel like he put in enough effort for me to do that. <laughs> so, in 
So yeah, this is from a article, the article by Clifford H. Pope titled Fatal Bite of Captive African Rear Fang Snake Dysphalitis. So essentially this is the account of the bite and effects written by Dr. Schmidt. So yeah, it's a first-hand report of a completely untreated bite. A boomslang snake with undivided anal plate. A 30-inch snake bought for identification to Chicago Natural History Museum by Mr. Truett of the Lincoln Park Zoo proved to be uncommonly difficult to name. It was known to be an African snake, and with the characteristic head shape, oblique and keeled dorsal scales, and bright colour pattern should have offered no difficulty, but no key for identification would make it a boomslang, for the anal was undivided. That it was nevertheless a boomslang, this Philidus typhus was dramatically attested by its behaviour. Mr. Truett, Dr. Robert F. Inger, Hyman Marks, and I were discussing the possibility of its being a boomslang when I took it from Dr. Inger without thinking of any precaution, and it promptly bit me on the fleshy lateral aspect of the first joint of the left thumb. The mouth was widely opened, and the bite was made with the rear fangs only, only the right fang entering to its full length of about 3mm. Only one other tooth mark from the penultimate tooth appeared on the thumb when the snake was disengaged. The punctures bled freely, and I sucked them vigorously, but did not think of... September 25, 4.30 to 5.30. Strong nausea, but without vomiting, during trip to homeward on suburban train. 5.30 to 6.30. Strong chill and shaking, followed by fever of 101.7 degrees. As a side note, it'll be in Fahrenheit as it is in America, which did not persist, brackets, blankets and heating pad. Bleeding of mucous membranes in the mouth began about 5.30, apparently mostly from gums. 8.30pm, ate two pieces milk toast. 9.30pm to 12.20am, slept well, no blood and urine before going to sleep, but very small amount of urine. Urination at 12.20am, mostly blood, but small in amount. Mouth had bled steadily, as shown by dried blood at both angles of mouth. A good deal of abdominal pain, mainly from gas, continuing to 1pm. Only inadequately relieved by belching. A little fitful sleep until 4am when I took an enema. Bowels having failed to move the previous day. Took a glass of water at 4.30am, followed by violent nausea and vomiting. The contents of the stomach being the undigested supper. Felt much better and slept until 6.30am, September 26. 6.30am, temperature 98.2 degrees. Ate cereal and poached egg on toast and applesauce and coffee for breakfast at 7. Slight bleeding is now going on in the bowels, with frequent irritation at the anus. No urine with an ounce or so of blood every three hours, instead of the several ounces of urine to be expected. Mouth and nose continuing to bleed, not excessively. After breakfast, Dr. Schmidt was up and active. In fact, he felt so well about 10 o'clock that he telephoned to the museum to expect him to be at work the next day. He got up to eat at noon, but vomited after lunch, and soon began to have difficulty in breathing. This grew worse until his laboured efforts could be heard all over the house. At the onset of these alarming symptoms, Mrs. Schmidt called the inhalator squad and the family physician. Attempts at resuscitation at first brought warmth back to Dr. Schmidt's hands and normal colour to his face, but his restorer was of short duration. He was transported to the hospital, where he arrived shortly before 3pm and was promptly pronounced dead from respiratory paralysis. The autopsy performed on September 27 at 9.30am by a coroner's physician, Cook County, Illinois, 
revealed extensive internal bleeding. Massive hemorrhages were found in the lumen of the lower two-thirds of the small intestine and the ascending and transverse colon. Subserous hemorrhages of the small intestine were of 1-5 to cm in diameter. The contents of the descending colon were bloodstained, and the oral mucosa was bloody. The 4 cc's of hemorrhagic urine resembled pure blood. Bleeding had occurred in the subarachnoid space over the lateral aspect of the left brain hemisphere, and anteriorly over the right one. There was free blood in the cerebral ventricles, and an additional hemorrhage over the right side of the cerebellum. The smaller hemorrhages were evident in the eyes and along the thoracic aorta. The renal pelvis of both sides contained fluid blood and clots. The spleen appeared to be enlarged. Historical examinations essentially confirmed these findings, and multiple small hemorrhages were found in the brain, in the submucous and subserous layers of the lower segments of the small intestine, and in the tubular areas of the kidneys, as well as near the renal pelvis. There were small bleedings found in the heart wall and the lungs, but there was no blood in the bronchial lumina of the lungs. And the autopsy report essentially emphasised that capillary damage with pericapillary hemorrhages appeared to be the main pathological lesions, and post-mortem blood clots were not prominent features. Death was ascribed to cerebral hemorrhages caused by the venom from the snake's bite, generally bleeding on the brain. Though, that said, the direct cause of Dr. Schmidt's death was uh, said to be respiratory failure. Though there are a lot of contributing factors, as you can probably tell from what I just read out, like bleeding on the brain, bleeding in the lungs, bleeding pretty much everywhere you could think of, and respiratory failure is generally thought to be due to clotting in the lungs, and the autopsy wasn't actually begun until 18 hours after death. Though, that said, post-mortem hemorrhages might have occurred, as the blood was still relatively fluid during the autopsy. So, not a great way to die. It's extremely scientifically interesting and pretty important. Also worth noting that a few hours before he died, um, he was actually asked if he wanted medical care, but refused, as it would upset the symptoms that he was documenting. That is not something I would do, but it really hammers in his scientific curiosity, kind of dedication to his study. I can't recommend it. Don't go getting yourself bitten by snakes. It's not going to be nice. If you do, go see a doctor. I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but just in case... One more recent papers I've read, which is from 2017, said that general significance of the study could essentially encourage further research on other non-front-fang collaborated snakes with venom capable of causing life-threatening envenoming to humans, and essentially should contribute to stopping fatal human accidents like in this case. And advancements in venomic analysis has resulted in comprehensive profiles of a large number of snake venoms, including a growing number of rear fanged snakes. Like I mentioned earlier, like at the time, a lot of the herpetologists believed that rear fanged colorbred snakes couldn't produce a fatal venom. So this is very good progress. Like the studies revealed that a number of the species can deliver lethal quantities of venoms for humans and increased awareness of life-threatening envenomings from rear fanged snake bites. Which leads to more interest in research, which leads to more interest in stopping these accidents and essentially producing antivenoms as well. Anyway, that's what all I've got for his death in the main part. But he did a lot of work in his lifetime, so let's let's read out a few things that he did, just because it feels right. So a few species and subspecies were named in his honour, such as the... Oh boy. So this may have some pronunciation. Let's call them missteps. Sounds better than me just getting it wrong. Okay, so Acanthodactylus schmitti, 
which is by Haas in 1957, Amphis Bina, a Schmittai by Gans in 1964, Honey Afanes, by Bailey in 1937, and let's pick a random one, Frasops, Schmittai by Loveridge in 1936. Schmidt himself would uh, describe some taxa as, like I said, he discovered approximately a metric fuckton of uh, snakes, like in comparison to other people. So he described things like the Leptopilus parvus in K.P. K. Schmidt and Inga in 1959, Phanaris albigularis angolensis but in K.P. Schmidt 1933, and another one that I'm going to pick at random, Neurogus Kayseri in K.P. Schmidt 1952. Worth noting from, those, from what I just read, some of these snakes were being named after him while he was still alive, which is one hell of an accomplishment. And in addition to this, he wrote more than 200 articles and books. So uh, he wrote things like, uh, one of the first ones he wrote was in 1933, Amphibians and Reptiles Collected by the Smithsonian Biological Survey of the Panama Canal Zone, The Fieldbook of Snakes of the United States and Canada with Delbert Dwight Davis. In 1951, he wrote, he wrote the Ecological Animal Geography, an authorised rewritten edition with Warder Clyde Alley based on Tia Geography of Ecologische Grundlage by Richard Hess, 2nd edition, John Wiley and Sons, New York. And one of the last ones he wrote was in 1957, Living Reptiles of the World with Robert Frederick Inger. And some other publications he wrote would include stuff like Notes on Amphibians and Reptiles of Michikoan Matsuko in the Fildiana Zul in 1947, and New Reptiles and a New Salamander from China in American Museum Noventatis in 1925. Just sort of throw a few out there. Just so, you know, he did a lot of stuff. It's pretty respectable. I'm very impressed, at least. But yeah, anyway, I think that's all I actually have. But anyway, let's cut the music, and we'll be right back. And we are back. So, I hope you enjoyed that. I thought it was pretty interesting, at least. Sorry it was a bit short this this week. I've had a um, pretty hectic week. It's been a bit all over the place. But, halfway, got it out. Pretty happy with myself. <laughs> Hopefully it's uh, good enough for you guys as well. But yeah, a bit different too, I thought. Um, as a sign, there was, no, there was another guy that I um, was considering doing, but decided against, as it was kind of similar, but I... I'm going to throw it in here just so you can look it up, which was done by a, a Justin O. Schmidt, different Schmidt entirely, born in 1947, who was an entomologist at the Carl Hayden Bee Research Center in Arizona. But he essentially let himself get stung by a pretty much anything that stings and ranked them from a zip, from a pain rank 0 to pain rank 4 for the most painful stings, with 0 being completely ineffective against humans. Would highly recommend just uh, taking a peek at the uh, Schmidt Pain Index, just because, like, you have to be a particular kind of person that yourself gets stung by, because um, you let yourself get stung by things like bullet ants, warrior wasps, etc. Like, it takes a particular kind of person to let themselves get stung by anything called a tarantula hawk. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. Go look it up. It's very interesting. Who knows? I might have it as a bonus episode sometime, but I don't think it's one that I'll go into, just because it's kind of similar to this-ish. But yeah, anyway, it's not what I'm talking about today. So, 
go look it up. I think on that, that's pretty much everything. So let's plug a few things before we and wrap it up. So my plugs this week will be the Murderly Network at murder.ly. I find a bunch of really cool true crime podcasts over there. Kind of give a shout out to more podcasts, Genuine Chit Chat podcast, Ignorance Was Bliss, and Soul Story. As they've all been giving me a bunch of shout outs on Twitter recently. And I have not really done much to pay it. So here's your shout out. Hopefully some people go and listen to you. Because I think they're all really great podcasts and really you should listen to them. <laughs> and yeah, so social media, we have Facebook at facebook.com slash blood the rocks. Twitter and Instagram at the bloody rocks. If you want to support the show, we have Patreon at patreon.com slash blood the rocks. And if you want to mesh me, um, let me know about anything. Just say hi, whatever. Give some feedback. Who knows? Whatever you feel like. Just um, drop me a message at botrpodcast at gmail.com. And I think that's pretty much everything. So, on that, thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Don't forget to tell your friends. And have a great week. I'll see you soon.